Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and postpartisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. I fix problems. I don't make them. And jumping right to the heart of the matter today, after watching the debacle that is the United States exit from Afghanistan from April to last Friday, what we have is the Harvard case study of the decade, a pinnacle of mismanagement. Now, take that back. Non-management purely reactive rolling failure. Some might want to argue that the COVID pandemic was more poorly handled, and that's true. But in that instance, mismanagement was a feature of the approach, not a bug. Let's start our Afghanistan case study at the current moment and then work our way back from there. So Thursday, October the 14th, 2021, a full six weeks after thousands of American citizens and our Afghan allies were left stranded in a hostile Afghanistan at the mercy of the Taliban, the United States State Department announced it will resume air evacuations from Afghanistan later this year. Sometime, mind you, the fine print said, after we negotiate with other countries to determine what countries are willing to send their air carriers into the Kabul airport. What countries do we have relationships with who will accept the Afghans who are still in U.S. visa processing process when we evacuate them from Afghanistan? How will the required travel documents be provided without a U.S. consular function in the country? And most urgently, how do threatened Afghans and dual American Afghan citizens and green card holders, how do they safely get transit across the country to the Kabul airport? In other words, 
There is no plan beyond the announcement. It reminds me of the good old days starting out a career in the tech industry. Every year, like clockwork, IBM, the 800 gorilla of that period in the computer manufacturing world or the computer equipment manufacturing world, I should say, would come out with a new product or product line announcement. Coming soon, bigger, better than anything on the market. Over the years, we competitors and suppliers learned that the IBM announcement and the others who followed suit were merely intending to freeze the market. While behind the scenes, IBM scrambled to design and build a product to match the new glossy market brochure and the related pitches. By freezing the market, IBM was able to, quote, buy themselves the time, unquote, that they needed to put out the, the new model or the new line of equipment that they'd announced without losing market share to smaller, more nimble competitors. The expression in those early days of my career was, you don't get fired for buying IBM. The State Department's Afghanistan evacuation resumption announcement without a plan to support the announcement is similarly intended to hold the press at bay for at least a few weeks while we hear rumors of atrocities carried out by the Taliban against Afghans who collaborated with U.S. troops and diplomats. Buying time, the State Department hopes, will stop the drumbeat on Capitol Hill for administration heads to roll. It's all just a continuation of the story of our involvement in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. I'm not disputing the necessity of our initial engagement in Afghanistan, rooting out terrorists and terrorist training grounds and neutering a jihadist government in Kabul in the process. And the second objective, bringing Osama bin Laden to justice. The problem is that once we accomplished the first objective, we had no plan to either occupy or exit Afghanistan. No one seemed to recognize at the beginning of this incursion into Afghanistan that by breaking it, we owned it, as Secretary of State Colin Powell, God rest his soul, warned before the Iraq invasion. Again, if you break it, you own it. I've listened to almost all the administration's public testimony before congressional committees, looking for answers to our military and diplomatic globally televised chaotic scurrying out of Afghanistan, punctuated by the loss of 13 American service personnel at the hands of ISIS. Our chaotic departure looked to all the world as a US defeat at the hands of a ragtag band of religious zealots. The diplomats past and present and the generals past and present all argue that our departure was not a defeat, but a failure of American national will. 
as well as a failure to develop with our NATO and Afghan partners a strategic plan for stabilization, disengagement, or diminished engagement over the past 20 years. What struck me most as each witness tried to paint the best light on their vertical government siloed performance was a total lack, not just of strategic direction, no clear, concise objective for the mission. I frequently counsel my clients, if the objective of your new program or your new company or your new initiative is not clear at the outset, you won't know when you've reached that goal or be able to measure the distance from today to that destination. In other words, to measure from your current position against the objective to develop a plan to close the remaining gap. That didn't exist in the 20 year history of our engagement in Afghanistan. A general lack of integration of efforts between the independent silos of the US government also struck me. I mean, we are living in the 21st century and yet the silos seem to work independent of one another. The military acknowledged Afghanistan was a strategic failure, but then argued their non-combatant emergency operation, their airlift, was a logistical success. The State Department, they didn't look successful on television. The State Department patted themselves on the back about evacuating 126,000 Afghans in two weeks by shifting the processing of their paperwork to the airport and receiving and to the receiving military airports in the Middle East and Europe. While at the very same time, the State Department acknowledged they didn't know, still to this day do not know how many Americans or other visa holders are stranded in Afghanistan or where in Afghanistan those people are or how the US government would get them to an airport if there were planes and consular personnel to process them out of the country. After the American embassy staff were helicoptered to the airport, they just abandoned the significant numbers of Afghan embassy employees who had worked side by side with them for years and left them to find their own way to safe to the safety of the Kabul airport. They had paperwork, but the distance between their homes in Kabul and the airport where they would be extracted was, as we saw daily on television for a couple of weeks, nigh impossible. So getting themselves to safety or not, well, that was up to those Afghans. Some were rescued, not by the military or by diplomatic efforts, but by the CIA or by former 
special forces operators who had voluntarily gone in to help get their former partners out, each working its own plan. And the CIA plan was initially unknown to other US authorities. The CIA were on the ground for the entire NEO evacuation period. They set up a secret gate at the airport to evacuate their own personnel, their own assets, and a list of White House special requests. They didn't acknowledge the gate's existence or allow for its expanded use by the military evacuation teams until August 28th, until 48 hours before the end of the NEO operation. And of course, because it's the CIA, we will never know the whole story of how, when, where, and why that secret gate existed and how many others, if there'd been better coordination, could have been rescued. The Department of Homeland Security has not yet been drugged before the relevant House and Senate committees so that Immigration and Customs Enforcement personnel can explain what their role in the processing of special immigrant visas was. You know, they do the background investigations and why it was taking so long including efforts by the previous administration to slow or stop processing such visa applications. While simultaneously, the Trump administration was negotiating the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. There was no secret here, guys. There was a lack of, of will, a lack of organization, and a lack of integration across the silos of the U.S. government to accomplish things in an efficient 21st century way. Nor has state nor ICE been asked to measure and explain the impact of the slowdown in processing and how that contributed to the chaos in the NEO, the non-combatant emergency operation. Just today, just on October the 18th, the IG, the Inspector General, General of the State Department has sent out an announcement that they're going to investigate the disconnects. And I, I put that in air quotes, folks, because I don't have a lot of confidence. How do we explain how or why no one in these disparate groups failed to recognize sometime between May of 2020 and April of 2021, a full year, that the whole Afghan edifice was going to crumble like sandcastles in a desert wind when we pulled the last 2,500 U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. Why had nobody noticed during the entire 20 years of so-called pacification efforts? Did nobody recognize the whole Afghan edifice was being held up by the U.S. military presence. Didn't take 100,000 troops, but it took some U.S. military presence. Why did we not realize that the Afghan army we built out of nothing? We had to teach them how to read so that they could use modern equipment. Given that level 
of ineptitude or inexperience or lack of skill, how come no one in the United States military chain of command, nor in our diplomatic chain of command, understood and passed to the National Security Advisor the fact that so-called progress was merely an illusion, you know, merely a mirage in what would be a sandcastle that would disappear with a simple desert wind. There's one simple reason, one simple answer to that question. At no time in the 20 years was there a single individual whose full-time job it was to coordinate and integrate all the American government activities on the ground in Afghanistan, both civilian and military, across all the silos of US involvement with a single objective, a stable Afghanistan. I didn't say highly democratic. I didn't say corruption free. I said a stable Afghanistan. In other words, a government that could function and resist the Taliban. And yes, the buck stops on the president's desk. It stopped on Bush's desk, on Obama's, on Trump's, and on Biden's. But the president is not responsible only for Afghanistan. He's responsible for everything else, domestic and foreign, involving any part of the United States government at any time. Anything that is planned or unplanned, emergency or some sort of enhancement, or anything political. They've just got way more stuff on that desk than Afghanistan. It's almost like they send the president out with his little speech that someone else wrote and just plop it in front of him and he goes and reads that one and he goes, okay, on to the next one. So the failure has to be, the failure in Afghanistan, and it is a failure, has to be shared by all four presidents because not a single one of them thought it was necessary, vital, or strategic to appoint a single civilian or military senior leader to oversee and integrate the whole Afghanistan puzzle. We made that same mistake in Iraq. In the Washington competition for power, there was never a single empowered department or individual who could see all the linkages between the various silos of the U.S. government, from USAID all the way to the Pentagon. There was no one who could architect and execute a comprehensive, coordinated approach to our engagement in Afghanistan and a road toward our disengagement. There was no single seat where excuses ended and only execution and accountability began. So let's take a little detour right now and contrast this fiasco with what Ford Motor Company did, announced a couple of weeks ago. 
Bill Ford kind of handed the day-to-day management, you know, he is the chairman of the board as well as the namesake of the of the family fortune. He handed over the management of today's Ford Motor Company in order to focus his attention on betting that the 100-year-old company could successfully transition from gasoline to electric vehicles and do it in very short order. They've announced the goal of selling 40% of its annual vehicle production as EVs by 2030, in other words, eight years from now. And to meet that goal, and then to continue evolving toward an all EV fleet, Ford is committing an end-to-end consumer-driven plan completely converting three of its most popular vehicles, the F-150, the Mustang, and the transit commercial vehicle, in seven years from now. That, those, those money makers, the guys who make all the money for Ford, will all be electric vehicles. It's going to cost $22 billion over the next three years for new plants and equipment and training. Ford at $22 billion is proverbially betting the family company. Ford's announcement demonstrates two things that are relevant to our conversation about Afghanistan. A focus on consumer satisfaction, which was, is the equivalent of what we didn't do in Afghanistan, winning the hearts and minds of the Afghanis. A singular focus on thinking through all of the objections and the what ifs, right down to plans to build out a nationwide network of charging stations that will crisscross town, cities, and rural America, overcoming the objection of the need to recharge. They're also going to produce a line of consumer tools so you in your home can set up your own charging station. We call that overcoming objections where I come from. The planning is focused on advancing technologically and in terms of how you actually manufacture and how you distribute the manufactured product. So they didn't just look at drawings of the final or or prototypes of the final vehicle. No, they had to actually go from that final assembly and reverse the assembled vehicle into its sub-assemblies and all the way down to all the initial component parts. Then look at the manufacturing processes, the marriage of man and machine to maximize efficiency, to determine what and where to manufacture in-house or to subcontract as seemed more efficient. Ford can't buy enough batteries to make this reality. So what are they going to do? They're going to build brand new facilities in Tennessee and conduct and Kentucky where they can integrate their supply chains as well as their finished product logistics and the human resources in those factories and in the field can be retrained or hired as the plants are built. The chairman of the board in order to, this is no small little task. You know, if if everything doesn't go 
the way it is planned, the Ford Motor Company could disappear. You know, uh, Tesla, for example, sold more cars in Q3 of 2021 than General Motors. So, you know, this is moving fast. And so the chairman of the board, the one guy who did not need to take federal money from the TARP bailout in 2008 because he had planned ahead, okay, made himself the single accountable point of integration across myriad regulatory, political, and human challenges, not just because his name is Ford, but because he recognizes success depends on knitting all the segments and silos of the Ford Motor Company together, present and future, and pulling that into a single pull from the consumer. In other words, from the time you drive out of a dealership all the way back to the raw materials that go into the batteries, the screws, the leather, the knowledge that lithium is both unstable and ecologically very toxic. And therefore, while we'll build lithium batteries to get us off the ground, we're already working on building something better using better materials. So all this is powered by smart human resource management. You're not gonna have labor strife. Doesn't mean that those new plants won't be unionized in areas which are traditionally not union friendly. It just means he's worked with the unions to make it happen. Okay, so part of customer satisfaction, winning the hearts and minds is how you manage the people who need to do the winning. And with all of that at stake, Ford's, Bill Ford's position is, who better than he to focus on this initiative while leaving day-to-day -day management of the existing company, which is a big enough job in itself, to his staff? Okay, so some of you will argue that there is no similarity between the Afghanistan war and Ford's conversion from gasoline power to EV vehicles. You can make that argument, but you'd be wrong. Lives and livelihoods. Safe, dependable, built in America. So lives and livelihoods depend on the success in both endeavors. The future of mankind, if not the physical planet, depends on controlling both the challenges of war and peace and climate mitigation. So two lessons we should take away from this comparison, another case study, a miniature case study, if you want to say, is to, the first lesson is to succeed. Any initiative begins with an agreed to, a stated measurable goal. If you haven't got a stated measurable goal, then don't start. And the second lesson we should take from this is that one person has to be given the singular mission of achieving the objective, working horizontally across the organization, identifying the points of linkage between and across what are traditionally uh, vertical functional silos, connecting all of those points of linkage and enforcing the common objective, asking the same question every day, what if?
until their day comes a day when there are no longer any what ifs. If the linkages don't connect, then the so-called principles, okay, the board of directors, the president and the national security council in these two analogies must determine how and whether we attempt to repair the broken linkages or just wind down versus cut and run. The objective of failure would be to prevent chaos, economic instability, or the loss or, ru or ruin of human life. Congress must take the lessons learned from Afghanistan and the observations from the Ford Motor Company's bold move into the future. Take these lessons forward to better integrate the activities of the agencies across the federal government and the integration of federal and state government activities. And they have to make those linkages through legislation. Every initiative must have a single owner with the power to integrate activities across the vertical silos. Horizontal integration and increasing efficiency cannot be left to an anonymous, unaccountable, unelected executive branch bureaucracy committed to remaining locked in their jobs, locked in the 20th century. Without such modernization of organizational thinking in Washington, none of the Build Back Better initiatives now languishing in the House of Representatives should be passed. Because without modernization of the organizational thinking in Washington, those initiatives will fail as surely as their predecessors did or are doing. Call or write your congressional representative. It's time that we hold them accountable for a 21st century government that works. Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.